take our scriptures this morning and head back to that first letter Paul wrote to Timothy as a young pastor at the church of Ephesus. First Timothy, or as new believers often and sweetly call it, one Timothy. One Timothy and two Timothy. I assure you if I wasn't saved as a boy and I was taught by my Sunday school teacher at five years old to say first and second, I would also say one and two and one Peter and two Peter. I'd like to thank um, all the folks that had um, part in preparing for today. Uh, the fellowship in Sunday school was sweet and it's always sweeter when the preparation is deeper and wider and so for all the folks who helped prepare the refreshments for our breakfast this morning, thank you. Uh, thank you for those taking pictures and for those uh, serving as ushers. I want to thank Pastor Hobie for putting the order of service together for today, and which probably had eight edits before it came to completion. So I think, and it started back when I was on sabbatical. Uh, in October, uh, so I thank him for his uh, his part in that preparation, and we would be remiss uh, to not thank Pastor Hobie also for being a gracious and um, persevering associate pastor at Grace Church of Mentor, a man who's been equipped by God to shepherd any church, any size church, in any part of our world quite well, has humbled himself and chosen to serve us and to help me. And that is a, that, that is a, that is a divine thing, my friends. There's, no, there's nothing of mere humanity in the decision to persevere in that way. And I know you're thankful for him. I'm forever thankful for him. And it's his, what he likes to call, second chair leadership that has really set the bar very high for any of those who would also serve here in that capacity in the future. And I know that they'll serve well. Let's ask God's blessing on the remainder of our service this morning. Lord, as we look into your word, the perfect law of liberty, Pray that each one of us would determine in our own hearts to be faithful hearers and doers of this word. That we might be, know what it means to be blessed of you in our deed. May everything that you hear and see this morning be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many of you have enjoyed the acting and the singing and the uh, of Dick Van Dyke, who recently turned 98 years old. He made this statement. He goes, if I would have known I would have lived this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> uh, always appreciated him for his humor. And uh, he's just as bright at 98, I believe, as he was at 28. Uh, well, we all know to get to 98 years old, you've got to have some pretty good DNA and probably a pretty good diet and exercise routine. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, even at 98 years old, Dick still goes with his daughter to the gym four days a week at 5.30 in the morning and lifts his weights. And when he's done, he goes home and he has a big breakfast and then he goes back to bed. 
and he gets up and then he'll go to the same store every day and do some shopping and every day he goes to that same store and he practices this weekly, daily, weekly routine. He'll find someone in the aisle and grab their hand and dance with them and bring joy to his community. Well, we all know that we're in a 75th year of celebrating God's faithfulness to us. And having completed that year and going on now into our 76th year, we can truly say that, that we have and do exist because of some divine DNA that we all enjoy. The indwelling of the Spirit of God who regenerated us and took us from spiritual death to spiritual life, the moment of our conversion. We've been baptized into Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of God. We've had the Word of God availed to us. We're saturated by the Scriptures and we're surrounded by faithful saints. And having had good DNA and a good diet and a good spiritual exercise routine, by God's grace, we're as healthy as we can be, with a long way to go in our health and in our strengthening. But nonetheless, we're here because we've, of Christ, and we're here because of how we've sought to honor his word as best we can. December 3rd, I said that there are 75 commands in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. We've sought to look at all of those 75 commands and obey them with intentionality, with balance, and therefore with integrity. But this morning I would just like to take a look at one of those commands. And it's found early in the first letter. We're going to reference this first command in chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. So let's read those verses here. And we're going to springboard from these verses to explain this command and its goal and how we reach those, how we live those goals so that we can attain to this command. Paul says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. What I'd like to do is focus on this phrase in verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience. The word faith here is just really a term that's synonymous with the word command that you found in verse 18. Keep the command. Keep the faith. The word keeping here just means to bear it. Literally, wear it. It doesn't mean to guard. 
There's another word in the New Testament for keep, which means to guard or to, to protect. It just simply means to allow it to become part of your person. Maybe you could picture it as a really nice warm coat that you regularly put on when you go out into cold weather. This is something that you're commonly seen wearing. Keep the faith. As I said here, the faith are just simply the, the body of doctrines written and preserved in the word of God for us to learn and obey. The word of God is our sole rule for faith and practice here at Grace Church of Menor, and by God's grace it always will be. But we're to keep this body of doctrines, this faith, this command of many with a good conscience. With a good conscience. The conscience of a man is well instructed and at peace when it knows and lives the commands of Scripture. Three times in 1 Timothy alone, Paul mentions the conscience. You see it first in chapter 1 and verse 3, where he says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. You'll find it again in the qualifications listed for deacons in chapter 3, where Paul writes, hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Each mention of the human conscience is directly tied to the command of Scripture, the instruction of Scripture, or the mystery of faith, all pertaining to the Word of God and the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The keeping of the faith with a good conscience is tutored, is taught, is well instructed here along three lines in our immediate context this morning. First of all, I'd like us to consider an admiration to nurture. There's something to be admired here, and it need, this admiration needs to be nurtured. Keeping the faith with a good conscience includes nurturing admiration for the Word of God and the people of the Word of God that he has placed right around us here at Grace Church of Menor. And Paul says this, this command I entrust to you. Again, this command... The whole context of the chapter 1 is really centered upon this command. And this command is found in verses 3, 4, and 5. Would you look over there with me? He first mentions this, this command here. I urged you upon the departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strained doctrines nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than Furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Which is by faith. That's the command. Teach and instruct the word to protect the church from false teachers. From false ones. That's the command. And as Pastor Kent re-explained the meaning of the word entrust, as we did also on December 3rd, Literally, to place food before. This command I entrust to you. I have placed it before you, Timothy. You've been fed well. You've learned well. And now you're living that command with a good conscience. Well, this is what you are to continue to do. I have entrusted it to you, Timothy. Admiring the command itself has everything to do with knowing and understanding 
and applying the truth of Scripture. Your personal relationship with Christ and with the Word of God is to be valued above all relationships in your home and even in our church. As we celebrate this installation service of a new senior pastor, this command really is just not given to Pastor Steve and the other pastors and our elders. It's given to you as a flock. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, right? For teaching. This command is entrusted to a man who shepherds a flock, yes. But it requires the flock to also eat well, obey well, live well. There's a book that Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote. I reference it often since I became a pastor. I was introduced to it in my early, early seminary training. It's called Lectures to My Students. And these are just notes that he taught pastoral students at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And uh, one of those chapters is on a proper use of tools in ministry, books. How important are books to the pastor? And of course, he, he lays a, a very heavy emphasis on the value of books and learning and knowledge. He said it was his experience in ministry that he would come across a lot of pastors from impoverished community, communities who could afford no books. And so they came up with a three-tiered system of how they were going to get information about the Bible, good theology and philosophy and practice into these uh, country pastors' hands so they could get them into their minds and in their hearts. It's a fascinating lecture that he gave. But he muses, as Spurgeon often did, about the reality of what book is really the only book that's essential for a pastor to be a good pastor. And of course, we all know that that's the scriptures. We preach from a sufficient word. And Spurgeon says here, if I only had my Bible in my library, a man who has not learned merely the letter of the Bible, but the inner spirit will be no meager man, whatever deficiencies he may labor under. You know the old proverb, Beware the man of one book. He is a terrible antagonist. A man who has his Bible at his fingers and it in its heart, in his heart. The scriptures become the core champion in his Israel. You cannot compete with him. You may have an armory of weapons, but his scriptural knowledge will overcome you. For it is a sword like that of Goliath, of which David said there is none like it. The gracious William Romaine, I believe, in the latter part of his life, put away all his books and read nothing at all but his Bible. He was a scholarly man, yet he was monopolized by one book, it was made mighty by it. If we are driven, Spurgeon concludes, to do the same by necessity, let us recollect that some have done it by choice. And let us not bemoan our lot. For the scriptures will be sweeter to them than honey 
to our taste and will make us wiser than the ancients. Our personal passion for this command that has been entrusted to us, this, this word of God, and embracing its sufficiency as our sole rule of faith and practice will nurture the proper admiration we are to have for that which has been entrusted to us. Also, keeping a good conscience in this passage would also refer to respecting the relationship with those from whom you've received the command and the teaching and those who have noticed your gifting. The Lord has set around us here. He set around me, and Pastor Kent, and now Pastor Steve, and Pastor Mike, those who have grown up here in large part, a spirit-filled cloud of witnesses among the elders at Grace Church. You've received the teaching of the whole will of God during your upbringing here at Grace. In addition, the Lord has given you many spirit-filled maturity matters, saints, here who have modeled for you with a good conscience the living of the command of the faith that has been given to you. The body of disciple-making People making more disciples remains a tutor for us as well. Together they're living the command which they've been entrusted to. Keeping the faith, keeping the command with a good conscience has everything to do with admiration for the word of God and for those who have taught and lived that word before you. Paul draws attention to those in our context to the prophecies being made concerning Timothy. Do you remember that in verse 18? In accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. These were those elders, maturity matters, and disciple-making members that spoke of Timothy's gifting, and they commended him to Paul for ministry and missionary travel. Remember back in Acts 14, particularly Acts 16, from the little town of Lystra where Timothy grew up. And there's always Paul, this command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my what? My son. Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. Paul probably had a very significant part in Timothy coming to know Jesus alongside his mother and grandmother. No more would Timothy be called to obey Paul as the new pastor at Ephesus, just as children are not asked to obey their parents, but to honor them after they say, I do. But our text would compel us to remember that those who mentor us and those who reared us in the Lord among the flock of God are to be admired, and that admiration is to be nurtured. And may I say it's a mutual admiration as we seek to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. So there is an admiration to be nurtured here, an admiration for the sufficiency in the the efficacy of the scriptures and an admiration for those who entrusted that command to us. But secondly, this morning, there's a readiness to be embraced. If there is a proper admiration, then there will be a readiness. And that readiness is seen here in the phrase, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. I was reading a an article not long ago over sabbatical just about 
pastors and their lives and, and what they enjoy and what they endure. And the, the title of the article went something like this. Um, not all pastors are bad, even though a lot of people tell you you are. Apparently, it was written to a group of pastors that uh, shepherd congregations unlike ours. But nonetheless, uh, I wrote down this statement as I read in the article. He said, those who criticize pastors about being pastors are often those who have never been pastors. <laughs> Keep the command with a good conscience would include fighting a good fight. And yes, the fight can come from within the church. And of course, in this context, that's exactly where the contention came from. We already read verses 3, 4, and 5. Well, there were two men in particular we'll get to here in just a moment that led that doctrinal skirmish among the church at Ephesus. The use of the war metaphor here is necessary. Peter tells us our enemy outside the church is like a roaring lion and is always lurking, seeking whom he may devour. And so from within or from without... There's a fight to be fought. According to the context, there's a way the enemy gains a footing in this battlefield. The answer is found again in our main encouragement to you and to all of us this morning to keep the faith with a good conscience. The command that has been entrusted and taught to you must be admired and it must be lived. The word of God known and lived together with the souls in your home and those of your church will be a large part of keeping the faith with a good conscience. And really we have no doctrine, faith, command if we do not have holy lives eyewitnessed by those closest to us. Again, Paul says, this is the command that I've entrusted to you, Timothy, my son. It's been and done in the cloud of these witnesses that you might war a good warfare. Uh, Pastor Steve, you will demonstrate your awareness of our chief enemy as you admire the word and the people of God who have taught it to you. In Timothy's case, this would be Paul, his mother, his grandmother, but also in his hometown, church, People Church of Lystra. Those spiritual leaders who recognize Timothy's gifting. I reemphasize this in this part of the sermon because it is the foundation to you, along with Pastor Mike and the elders here, fighting a good fight. James tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, resistance is quite objective in this context. It's not mystical at all. I would like to share with you two things that will help us fight this good fight in relationship to how we know and understand God's word. There must be some things that we maintain in order to remain aware of the dark desire of the enemy from within and from without. Know the word and only apply it within its context. For some of you who are newer to Christianity and on your way to diving into and drinking the milk of the word and you're on your way to understanding the harder meat of the word, this, um, this, this, this may not make too much sense to you, but maybe it will. Um, these few verses that we read and preach from this morning are within 
what we call an immediate context, this one little paragraph that has a paragraph before it and a paragraph after it, a full chapter of paragraphs before those paragraphs and a full chapter after. But we must know the word of God within its context and it must be, be applied within its context. This is the command that's been entrusted to you. So many have drifted or gone astray, some quite sincerely, because they have a poor ability to discern and apply the scriptures according to their context. So many have done that. In church history and even in modern times. I suppose there will always be people within the body who sincerely want to know the word of God but misstep in its proper interpretation and application. But the pastors at Grace Church of Menor should resolve to only know the word of God within a proper interpretational context and preach it and apply it accordingly. This is guarding that, keeping that which has been given you to keep, to wear, to bear. This is fighting the good fight. The enemy of the takes no ground among the flock as you teach and apply the word of God within its context. Or secondly, know the content of the word of God well enough to preach it proportionally. Proportionally. J.C. Ryle in his book, Warnings to the Churches, has a wonderful chapter on this. The importance of teaching the word of God within its proportion is the protection of the church. G. Campbell Morgan, in the biography written by his family members, recounted to them that his greatest regret was spending too much time in the book of Genesis in one particular ministry where he shepherded. I believe in that book, it was over 40 years he spent preaching through those 50 chapters. His regret was obvious to us, I suppose. In so doing, he made the rest of Scripture in his own heart and his own conscience seem expendable to his people, even though I'm pretty sure they knew it wasn't. Some would like you to only preach letters of the New Testament. Some would adore you, and Pastor Mike, if you invested your years in teaching Daniel, Revelation, and other prophetic texts. Yet others would love you to hunker down in the poetry of Scriptures or maybe even the Pentateuch. Remember, we're talking about keeping the faith, all of it, all of the commands, right? All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable with a good conscience. You must determine to approach the teaching and preaching of the whole word of God as Paul did, as he reminded the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, that's keeping the faith. And you must help disciple makers here know how to live it within its context, as they grow in holiness. That's keeping the faith with a good conscience. There is no keeping the faith with a good conscience if you teach and apply the word of God disproportionately or non-contextually. There is no genuine growth. And there is no clear conscience. And I'll say that again. There is no keeping of the faith with a good conscience if you teach and apply the word of God disproportionately and non-contextually. So there's an admiration to be nurtured and a readiness to be embraced. We fight the good fight this way. But there's also, as we conclude, an admonishment with which we're to be warned. 
an admonishment with which we're to be warned. Uh, Pastor Steve, um, Pastor Mike, elders, probably somewhere in your schooling, you read Homer's Odyssey. I love that. Do you remember Odysseus, his journey home, takes him past the island of two sirens? Knowing the seduction of the sound of those two sirens, Odysseus commanded his sailors to put wax in their ears so they could not hear them. And after they had done that, he has someone tie him to the mast, knowing his own weakness to temptation. Only with ears deafened and Odysseus tied to the mast would the sailors make it home without falling to temptation. Paul tells Timothy later on in chapter 4 and verse 16, I believe, take heed to yourself and also the doctrine. I think there's divine order there. As we already said in the Lord's Supper, we know our own fallenness. No one knows our own fallenness better than us as pastors, than the Lord. None of us would dare speak among one another the fullness of the darkness of our own tendencies. But we often speak of the amazing grace that has kept us from pursuing such. Unfortunately, there's, there's two men here that ceased to entrust themselves to this command and therefore cease to live with a good conscience. Our text is very clear that there will always be some within your own context that will reject the teaching of Scripture within its context and the teaching of Scripture within its proper proportion. The shipwreck metaphor here is wisely chosen as the war motif as well. Paul had been shipwrecked. He understood the chaos and the fear that is the realities of souls drifting in the cold sea with nothing for them to hold on to, to stay afloat. Terror is the reality of the shipwrecked. So it is an appropriate metaphor here. There's nothing that uh, the, the terrorist of the local church is not the fear of a An invader with a gun into our atmosphere, which tragically has happened way too many times. The terrorist of the church, two names are given here, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul doesn't pull names out of a hat very often. But when he does, these are the people that had to be warned publicly and they had to be put out for the protection of the flock and Church historians tell us that these were most likely former elders at the church of Ephesus. That Paul had to go toe-to-toe with for the protection of the flock. Never something a pastor wants to do. Everything we try to do to avoid that. But sometimes, unfortunately, necessary. These were men of influence. 
elders who probably led the doctrinal insurrection. Recorded for us in verses 3 through 5. Timothy was set in Ephesus to instruct and to correct. And they did so by their own misinterpretation and application of the word of God. Paul is saying here, don't be those guys. And you won't be if you keep the faith with a good conscience. As described in the text today. Seventy-six years now we're approaching of enjoying God's faithfulness. Because we've longed to be faithful to his word and its appropriate application. By the way, Paul only mentions Timothy's name twice in the first letter. We saw one this morning. He only mentions Timothy's name by direct address in this letter when he has something of profound importance to teach him. In this situation, something of profound importance to remind him. Go with me over to chapter 6 now, and let's look at the second and final time he mentions Timothy's name. Verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you Avoid worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. That's all that happens when you have preaching out of context or preaching out of proportion. Which some have professed and thus have gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you, Timothy. How's that finishing up with a really positive note? Folks, those of you who are new to the Lord, it's okay. There's always going to be a little remnant of unfaithfulness among the faithful. And all Paul is saying here, there is, there is a sufficient scripture that helps us detect, address with love and concern those who would take the word of God and misteach it and misapply. Go over with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. We want to conclude this morning by an Old Testament allusion to the Israels coming back after captivity of 70 years in Babylon, having regathered at the water gate for a new hearing of the book of the law of Moses. And this text is powerful because... It really is an Old Testament example of the influence of the Word of God when it's taught properly, applied properly, and lived properly. And this is what we'll continue to enjoy here as the day goes, days go on. Verse 5, Ezra 8. Men, women, and children, all who could hear with understanding, are gathered six o'clock in the morning. They call for the elders to bring out the book of the law of Moses to read. And Ezra opened the book, verse 5 says, in the sight of all the people... For he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then the elders that are listed here, in verse 8, what does it say? For end of verse 7, they, the people with all, they, they, they remain in their place. They read from the book. From the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. 
That's really expository preaching. Okay? There was some interpretation, investigation, interpretation, and proper application. What's the result of that? Then Nehemiah, verse 9, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, and to send their portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. That's keeping the faith with a good conscience where you know the word of God well enough, where you, it drives you to holy living and a pure conscience before our Lord. Uh, this is the command commended to you today and to all of us today to maintain until we hear that trumpet blare from the clouds and we join our Savior there. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the hearing, the preaching of your word. Again, may we be faithful doers and not just hearers, that we may be blessed in our deed. In Christ's name, amen. Pastor Steve, Charlotte, would you join me up here on stage? Uh, elders, would you join me? We'd just like to have a brief prayer of dedication. And then the elders would like to sing and lead in a hymn together. So in preparation for that singing, if you'd like to turn in your hymnals to number 165. Number 165. All right. Come on over. Charlotte. All right, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, uh, we love to, to do your word. And we entrust to... Pastor Steve and these men, uh, the command that's been given to us, uh, may they pursue the keeping of it with a good conscience. Uh, we commend the efforts of this leadership and these people uh, to your protection. As we understand the provision is there for us, we need your protection as we seek to advance the good news of Jesus Christ individually and corporately from Grace Church of Menor until Jesus comes. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated and we're going to say.
Oh, our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening, this morning, with thanksgiving in our hearts, with anticipation of what you're going to do here at Grace Church of Mentor. Lord, we believe that you have in indicated your man to lead us forward. You've indicated your team to support that man. And now, Lord, I pray that as we do move forward in the spirit, that our hearts and our minds would be so in tuned to you. Lord, that you would allow this church to remain faithful to your word. That there would be no hint of compromise. That we would take your stand. A holy stand. Oftentimes a separate, lonely stand. Lord, we know that this is your church. Your son said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so we rejoice in that, knowing, Lord, that you are the builder and the foundation of your church. I commit Pastor Steve and his dear wife Charlotte and their sweet girls all to you, Lord. Protect them. Certainly uh, the devil will seek to destroy them. He will seek to interfere in the marriage. He will seek to interfere in the, the upbringing of the children. Lord, we know how the devil works. Help this man to remain firm. Help him to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Help Charlotte to submit and encourage and lift up her husband. And give them unity as they seek to raise their children in the way that they should go. Lord, allow us to work in harmony the one with another let us always be ready to listen and slow to speak as we seek to move forward with your blessing we thank you lord for what you've done what you're doing and what you're going to do lord and in the meantime as we wait for the trumpet with joy with anticipation let us be busy about your business in jesus name and for his glory amen